This is a Rook series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 1. Hi there, welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part one from Shahyod to Azadi. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled versions with Persian Zirnevis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. You can find this program on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox, and Telegram, as well as YouTube. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 1. Imagine a legendary symbol representing almost all things to do with a nation that almost overnight morphs into a symbol for the opposite of what it stood for. What if it's an actual building, an identifiable monument in the middle of a capital city? What kind of precedent is there for such a change? Well, if you visited Iran in the 1970s, you would likely have wanted to see the symbol of beautiful architecture in Tehran, the Maidan Shahyad, as it was known then, an iconic structure that literally referenced the monarchy. But if you visited Iran today, you would still witness the same structure in all of its glory, except now you would be visiting the Maidan Azadi, Freedom Square. And now it's somehow a symbol of an Islamic Republic. What is the story of how this essential monument of modern Iran that features a design influenced by both pre- and post-Islamic architecture transformed, at least in identity, after a revolution? This is the question for our inaugural edition of Rook's Contemporary History of Iran series. And for this discussion, I'm joined by Dr. Talon Grigor. Talon is a professor and chair of the Art History Program at the University of California, Davis. She was born and raised in Iran. She moved to California at the age of 14, where she's been living since. Talon's research focuses on 19th and 20th century art and architectural histories through the framework of post-colonial and critical theories grounded in Iran and Parsi India. Her books include Building Iran, Modernism, Architecture, and National Heritage under the Pahlavi Monarchs, Contemporary Iranian Art from the Street to the Studio, and The Persian Revival, The Imperialism of the Copy in Iranian and Parsi Architecture. That's from 2021. 
Her work has appeared in countless magazines and academic journals, and she's held residential fellowships at the National Gallery of Art, the Getty Research Institute, and Cornell and Princeton Universities. And right now, Talon Grigger joins me from Davis, California. Hello. Uh, hi, Jian. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for, for doing this. It is confounding to me. It's so interesting to me. And I'm going to ask you in a few moments whether there are other historical examples like this, that a symbol, that a building that is so iconic, so relatable to a certain era of a country can transform to become the symbol of another era of the country. But um, let me start here. What can you tell us about why this tower was initially built and perhaps the original significance of it? Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, that's uh, basically you're asking a question about the history of architecture, uh, how monuments change their meaning in accordance to who is writing their history. One of the great examples of that kind of change in meaning is, for example, Hagia Sophia. And the Shahiyad monument is a great example in the Iranian case. It was originally, they started the construction in 1966 when Etelat, the most important newspaper in Iran, um, announced a national competition where uh, there were 20 entries. It was limited to only Iranian architects. So that was already a very important thing that uh, Westerners especially Western architects couldn't participate in this competition. Um, and there were 20 entries, and eventually this proposal was accepted, and um, it was realized by October 1971. And it was built as a, I mean, the the translation of Maidana Shahiyad is the, the, the remembrance of the Shahs, right? The square of the remembrance of the Shahs. Uh, w- was that the idea? I mean, I guess it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So the monument was uh, built for the uh, on the occasion of the 2,500 year anniversary where Mohammad Reza Shah's government put together. They actually worked on it for almost a decade. And eventually, in October 1971, there was this grand celebration at Persepolis where all the major heads of states were invited uh, to Shiraz and Persepolis. Some ceremonies took place at Persepolis and Pazargada. And then when the invitees were flown into Tehran, the events reopened at the foot of this monument. So from the very beginning, this monument was supposed to mean the very long history of Persian monarchy, it was supposed to uh, connect the ancient, the Persepolis and the Achaemenids, to the Pahlavi monarchy. Uh, so architecture became a link between the ancient and the modern, the contemporary. And so the name, the form, the rituals around it, all of them were meant in 1971 to signal 2,500 years of Iranian monarchy, uh, the very tradition of kingship in Iran, which is central to how Iran, Iran's history, how Iran has been governed. You know, I remember um, 
Professor Abbas Milani writing about um, this. I, I just had the occasion to reread the Shah, his book, in uh, um, speaking to him a few months back, and I remember him talking about the the Maidan Shahiyad, this this monument. And so I went back and looked at what he said, and he says Shahiyad was a gateway to the future and a celebration of the past, which is what you're saying. I, I, I see how it was that spiritually. Is it that, or was it that architecturally as well? Uh, absolutely. So, the monument is designed by Hossein Amanat, uh, who was an architectural student at the University of Tehran uh, School of Fine Arts. And so, if you look at the form of the monument, the way that it has a central arch, and then it evolves, but the arch itself evolves um, in multiple ways to refer to the different periods in Iranian history. First of all, the very notion of the triumphal arch, the Roman triumphal arch has been revolutionized, has been modernized, where uh, you see a gate. This is uh, something I argued in my master's thesis almost 20 years ago, where this is very typical of modernist gate because it's not really, it doesn't open, it doesn't close, it doesn't control anything, but it is very much a gate through which we can imagine ourselves to be Iranian. Mm. Um, it, is, uh, it is the gate through which, um, and, and the Shah talked about um, the Tamadon Bozurk, and he kept talking about how we are at the gates of this great civilization that we are just about to leap into the future um, and this kind of utopian uh, society modern right, society right. that he was creating and Shahiyat becomes that gate through which Iranians were encouraged to imagine the upcoming great civilization that um, they are living through. So the monument itself has a reference to the Triumphal Arch. It has a reference in its form. It has reference to the Parthian fire temples, the um, Chartar. It certainly uh, refers uh, the opening itself is actually a copy of the Sasanian Avon uh, from Stesiphon, that being the Stesiphon Palace being the last Sasanian monarch left from the Stesiphon Palace, and that's when the Sasanian Empire uh, fell and ended. But it also, I mean, Hossein Amanat did a great job of synthesizing. It wasn't just the pre-Islamic, just the Zoroastrian, Mazdaic references, but also it refers to the Seljuk tomb towers. And then right, eventually right. at the top of the arch, you're seeing the Safavid uh, Mukarna's work. And all of this is put together in a way that at the end, building the monument is a modernist monument yeah uh, it's it's quite a feat you know i just parenthetically i mean i i there's something magical about it at least in my i mean the last time i was in iran i was five years old so i don't remember a lot other than um you know visiting family and connor the dry and a few things like that but <laughs> but but i do remember the azadi tower i mean i remember it and i remember it being kind of magical i mean did it have that impression upon you as a kid when you were we, we, there long before you became a an expert in architecture not as a child but when i did go back for my dissertation research 
uh, obviously um, I saw it as an as an adult, as a sort of scholar in training, as a student of architecture, uh, and that was very impressive and magical. But what I find fascinating about this building is the way that it keeps the form. We see Shahiyad exactly as it was built right. in 1971. But the layering and layering of its meaning. Yes. So the way that you introduced it in the beginning, this represented the Shah, the, it, as if sort of it replaces the body of the Shah. Yes. Um, uh, but then during the revolution, the two years of the revolution between 77 and 79, it had a completely different meaning for the people who were using it um, as an anti-Shah, as as the centerpiece of their anti-Shah protest. Let let me actually Uh, cut you off there, and and because that's exactly where I wanted to go with this. And and before Mm -hmm. we get to what happens in the aftermath of the revolution, let me ask you about what you've just said, because in a broader discussion of of how this building gets reframed, throughout history and whatever the language is that you would use around buildings like this. Uh, Was there already, I mean, given the original intent and symbolism and meaning of this, this monument, was there already a paradox at work? Was there already a paradox happening when it becomes one of the epicenters of anti-Shah protests in the lead up to the revolution? Yes. So the paradox is that it's not just the monument and how it looks and how it stands. It's the larger Pahlavi urbanism and going back to Reza Shah. So if we remember the 1920s, late 20s, 1930s, Reza Shah destroyed 11 of the 12 gates uh, of Rajar Tehran. So on Reza Shah's part, that was a modernization effort to get rid of the walls, to get the fortification walls that Nasreddin Shah had uh, erected, to get rid of these city gates, what the Pahlavi elite in the 30s perceived as regressive medieval urbanism. And only one one gate was left. And the other thing that Reza Shah did was these extremely large boulevards that went north and south and east and west. And one of them was Shahreza Avenue that extended and then it was further extended in the 60s. And so in Mohammad Reza Shah's effort and his urban planners to solve some of the problems that Tehran had, urban problems that Tehran had, which was that it kept growing north and south. And if you know the topography of Tehran, there is so much you can extend north and south because in the north you have the uh, mountain ranges and in the south you have the desert. So Mohammad Reza Shah's urban uh, designers, they started to expand Tehran eastward and westward. And the design of Shahiyad was one of these efforts to extend Tehran and encourage the increasing population to move towards the east and the west. So the very design of this the biggest open urban square in East Tehran was part of that larger effort that started in the late 20s. So the fact that you had these extremely large boulevards like Shahreza that then connects to one of the biggest 
open urban squares at the center of which stands this monument itself was conducive to large gatherings, large protests. And so people, the protesters and their leaders, it was almost sort of logical that they would march on Shahrizal Avenue and then gather around, gather in this larger open square. So the fact that the Shah wanted something grand, something majestic, something open, so the biggest, the largest, that also, that same intention, that same royal intention, then lends itself to be used by anti-Shah movement uh, for the same purpose. They too want somewhere big, somewhere to gather, all of them collectively experience right. this uprising. It's fascinating. And it wasn't lost on them that this was the Maidana Shah Yad, I can imagine, too, if they're <laughs> protesting outside of it. Um, there's a series, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, it's on uh, Amazon Prime or something now, called um, The Man in the High Castle, and it's uh, based on a, um, a Philip Roth novel? or Philip. Uh, it's it's a, a reimagining of the world if the Nazis had won World War II. Uh, and so in America, one thing that they do is they tear down the Statue of Liberty, right? This has been, mm-hmm. this is the iconic symbol of America, let's tear it down. So it's so curious to me that given that this was such a monument to the monarchy, I mean, it was literally called the Remembrance of the Shah Square, <laughs> that... And that it was designed by a member of the Baha'i faith, Hossein Amanat, as you, as you mentioned. Why was it not shuttered or torn down or somehow destroyed like so many other vestiges of the Shah era when the Islamic formalists consolidate power in the years after the revolution? So my argument for that has two reasons. Um, one was that Azadi Square and the monument itself were central to the success of the revolution. I believe that, I've argued that it's precisely in this extremely large urban open space that could accommodate two million people. So, for example, on November 10th, 1978, Shahiyad Square could accommodate two million pro- protesters right. at once. Right. And on, on top of that, the fact that the monument itself is this kind of central tower uh, with these extended wings on which people could express their anti-royalist sentiments. So on the monument itself that is called Shahyad and it's for the memory of the Shah, you can protesters could actually write debt to the Shah. So the monument allows this kind of popular resistance. Mm, uh, mm. People were climbing on the wings and going up and in order to put posters and flags and protest uh, boards on the monument. On top of that, the media could broadcast the revolution from the monument itself. So you had journalists who could film and could... So the presence of the monument in its large urban landscape, urban space, my argument has been it enabled this kind of protest. And from revolutionary history, we know this, for example, from the French Revolution and then Haussmannian urban reforms in Paris, we know that they created extremely large boulevards in Paris 
because the French Revolution was on their mind. So I really think that um, uh, there is a correlation between the design of the square and the success of the revolution. So when the revolution ended and the um, Islamic Republic came to power through a referendum, the monument had already shifted its meaning. Yeah. And and the fact that Hossein Amanat was a Baha'i was a little bit, at that point, irrelevant, in part because 1970s Iran, 1960s, 70s Iran, was extremely cosmopolitan. I mean, you had all sorts of artists and architects and singers and filmmakers and it was an extremely diverse society in terms of who was Muslim, who was Baha'i, who was uh, Christian, um, uh, who was Jewish. And although there was a, there was an announcement for his arrest and he fled the country, afterwards, once the Islamic Republic was established, I think it was much more important to the authorities to maintain the monument and change its meaning through further rituals than actually to destroy it. If they had destroyed the monument, they would have destroyed the revolutionary uh, legacy or actually a part of the revolution. You know, you really uh, have stimulated my mind with this. <laughs> because it's, it's fascinating because, in other words, it wasn't just that it was a benign structure or a blank canvas that could be reframed. You're arguing it was actually part of, it was a player in the revolution. Uh, and it was fundamental to the revolution, this building, this square. I'm an architectural historian. I absolutely believe that. <laughs> yeah. So how does it officially become reframed, as you were just intimating, to become the symbol of the new Islamic Republic of Iran? When does it get crowned Azadi Square, etc.? So almost after the revolution, sort of almost immediately after the revolution, the name was changed. Uh, immediately you had different sets of plaques here and there referring to the Azadi Square. During the revolution itself, it was very important that this was a, f a space of freedom, this Fazoe Baza CRC, which was sort of practice. So uh, immediately it was called Azadi. Um, there were very minor changes to uh, some of the lower reliefs. Um, in one of the reliefs, you actually see the prints, and then that was sort of covered up and, and painted. But otherwise, the building remained intact for about... Um, 15 years after the revolution, it was a little bit neglected. There wasn't much of a collection or exhibitions in there. Um, so they left it like that. Um, sort of they, in a way, left it to have that effect of changed meaning. And then it was later on more when uh, during Khatami's period where cultural activities uh, were uh, sponsored by the state that the square and the monument became a little bit more active. Uh, but the most important ritual that happens there every year at the anniversary of the revolution around the square with official um, military parades and speeches by the president each year, uh, that is the real time, the annual 
ritual where the meaning of the revolutionary meaning of the uh, azadi is reinforced by the state. Uh, And it's published in both international media uh, and in local media. And you always see the monument in the background of these um, soldiers uh, marching and parading. You know, this transformation, and when you say uh, proudly that you're an architectural historian, let me test you on that and ask you <laughs> ask you about, to give me some global context on this, because, I mean, I don't, you know, I was trying to think off the top of my head about historical sites that have changed hands in a similar way. I was thinking of um, the Angkor Wat temples in Siem Reap, Cambodia, that were originally built as Hindu temples and are now icons of Buddhism. Um, but how often do we see, I mean, you mentioned ISO. Sophia, how often do we see what happened with the Shahyad Azadi Tower in the modern era? I think in general, my argument is that in general, if a monument is architecturally and uh, urbanistically is a successful architecture, it's an architecture that works, sort of, it's a building that works, you can live in it, you can experience a sense of harmony and proportion and so if if there are certain architectural qualities to it that are considered workable qualities aesthetic qualities tectonic and structural qualities then their transformation of meaning becomes much easier and we have in the modern case especially 19th 20th century and 21st century transformation the whole culture of reuse, renovation and reuse factories that turn into these fancy lofts, for example. Right, right. Again, as long as the building stands, as long as there's nothing more attractive than a hefty I-beam, for example. It all depends. I mean, again, it has to be taken case by case. It has to depend on those who are custodians of these monuments, how they approach it, how they manage to actually preserve it structurally, how they manage to be committed to its uh, aesthetic integrity, structural integrity, decorative integrity, but also how they change its narrative through external means. So, For example, in the case of Azadi, uh, the Islamic Republic could have easily sort of completely painted over it. It could have destroyed it. There was this um, rumor that on top of it, there are these window openings at the very uh, top of the towers. And supposedly there's uh, a certain number, seven or nine, I don't remember now, that is a Baha'i symbol. So there were rumors that, uh, you know, um, Hossein Amonat had implanted these covert Baha'i symbols in the Shahyad. And Islamic Republic could have easily sort of chopped off the top of it, but they didn't. I mean, the structural and decorative integrity of the monument was kept, and only its uh, story was changed. Um, On the other hand, uh, we also know that Amonat went out of his way to make this an Iranian monument in the sense that it's using 2,500 pieces of stone. Uh, All the material comes from Iran itself. 
the lapid lazuli that is um, doing the beautiful sort of stone implants into the monument that sort of drives your eyes up to the top of the tower. The way that it incorporated Safavid and Seljuk elements and and also it's an extremely successful monument. I mean, you really enjoy visiting it. You go underground through the middle part and then you work your way up and as you're working your way up you encounter incredible spaces of different kinds that works you you know you were talking about this um yearly ritual there where the revolution is is remembered or celebrated um but azadi square has also in recent years become the site of uh, new protests, this time against the current regime. Uh, it was the center of dissent, as I recall, following the 2009 Iranian elections, uh, uh, you, you know, the physical focal point of the Green Movement opposition. Why, why do you think it keeps becoming the ground for historical and ideological battles? I think for the same reason that it was the site for the original revolution. It's because of its urbanism, it's because of its architecture, it's conducive to protest. And, and also in 2009, the revolutionary memory was operational in the sense that the leaders of uh, the 2009 protest, they knew that here on this side, a revolution happened that was successful. So there was a conscious effort to repeat the revolution, right? to protest and make that protest um, uh, successful. Talon, how does a, uh, this might be a difficult question to answer, right? but I'm sure you'll, you can give it a shot. <laughs> how does a building uh, become a symbol for a nation or for a people's or for an era? Uh, in other words, as, as hard as uh, the propaganda machine or uh, the uh, advertising execs may try, it, it occurs to me that, you know, the Canadian government couldn't just pick a building now and say, okay, everybody, this is the way Canada is going to be defined. <laughs> and yet the Maidana Shahiyad or the Maidana Azadi or whatever we want to call it has become this shorthand this mainstay of pop culture it's like the shorthand you want to talk about tehran you you want to talk about iran you you know if it's a tv program or it's a, if it's a film you know ranging from uh, i remember that film the scent of joseph's shirt where there's this whole scene she arrives in iran and it, there's the azadi tower or argo you know you always see the Ar azadi tower why do you think this building in particular uh has become the symbol in popular culture and how does a building become that the building any building first and foremost needs to be a good architecture i mean architecturally it needs to be a high standard architecture to begin with and also it needs to be in a context where it is constantly visible, accessible. And uh, in the case of Shahyad, it's like right there. I mean, right. you have to be blind to not see it. Uh, the moment you arrive... There's no condos around it. <laughs> it's, it's a really sage point. It makes sense. You can see it. Yes, <laughs> can, exactly. Right, yeah. Just imagine, for example, one of the smartest things that I am did when he was asked to design the Islamic Museum in a place like the 
Persian Gulf states where every five minutes there's so much construction that the post office is unable to keep up with the um, addresses. So the first condition he put, I am pay, was that I want this building to be far away, actually a little bit out in the water uh, in order to preserve its integrity. So that then you don't end up with a bunch of high rises around it that in 10, 20 years, it's sort of suffocating in the middle of these high rises. So one of the ways that Shahiyat and Azadi has maintained its integrity is, first of all, its architecture, its context, its urban context, and the way that the Islamic Republic has not allowed further construction. I mean, I'm sure that's a very prime property, but it has not been built around. The second one is about discourse. That's that's very important. Any monument can be completely forgotten and then eventually neglected. And buildings, just like anything else, they you have to care for them. And if not, they will fall apart. Yeah. The discourse about them, the official discourse, th- this is where patronage becomes so important because buildings need money and need attention and need expertise. And so when there is a discourse around the monument like this one, um, it means that someone, some authority, the state, some ministry, for them, the preservation of the monument is important to the preservation of the discourse around it. This is the monument of the revolution. What do you mean by the discourse around it? I mean, just that that people talk about it? What, What does it mean? No, no, no. It means that there is a narrative, an official narrative about the monument that is constantly reinforced through performance, through publication, through dissemination, through textbook repetition of that narrative in textbook and education and media. And so then that it becomes a normative. Most young people in Iran at least when I was doing research and trying and writing on Shahiyad, when I asked a young 17-year-old, I said, you know, what about, what do you think about that white tower near the airport? And she couldn't care less. She had no memory. She had no collective memory of it because uh, she associated with the state. And at that moment, she didn't care about the state. She didn't care about these official discourses about the Republic, she just dismissed. She's like, who cares about the monument? I mean, there are like more important things like Ali McBeal, like whatever episode <laughs> she was watching at the time. Right. So, I was going to say it's a 90s reference, but yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's a very 90s <laughs> reference. Uh, but that's what she was interested in talking about to me. And that she couldn't care less about the monument. So it's not just about the physicality of it, but what stories are being told about it Mm. and what kind of identities are being projected off of it. The Shahiyat Azadi, the importance of it in my mind is that it's multiple layers of meaning. Mm It's sort of the elephant, literally, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the middle, Mm -hmm. you know, that story that... Uh, all these blind people were touching an elephant and one 
ends up touching the ear and thinks that it's some kind of a fabric. The other one touches the body and thinks it's a hefty wall. Hmm. One of them is touching the tail and thinks it's some kind of a cord. So everyone at the end, all of these people were touching the same elephant. They have a very different perception of it. I see Shahid Azadi as that, that for the diaspora who has been away from Iran for 30 years. For them, it means the 1970s good life, uh, which is very tragic because that good life is always in the past. But the discourse continues. I mean, you get wedding invitation with Shahid on it. You get credit card uh, with Shahid on it. Right. You, get, you get all sorts of things right. with Shahid on it. But that's, that's the discourse that is created by the diaspora about one layer of the meaning uh, of the monument. Then there is the revolutionary meaning that is revived again and again whenever there is an uprising. And then there is the official Islamic Republic narrative about it that is performed through these annual military parades. And and also, actually, maybe the most honest one is the one where Shahid Azadi has become a symbol of Tehran. In many venues, it is used by environmentalists and people who are concerned about poverty and shanty towns. You know, you have all these cartoons about where Shahid is, or Azadi is depicted, but then addresses the pollution problem in Tehran. It addresses the shanty towns uh, of Tehran. It addresses uh, the gap between the rich and the poor. And so there's that aspect of it is sort of the activist on the ground who care about something beyond politics or history or... But you know, the real uh, or one of the real teachable moments of this conversation for me has been that the ascendance of this building to this legendary symbolic status is the, that the architecture is integral to that. It, that's so interesting to me. In other words, uh, if I hear you correctly through this conversation, even if we took the same space and uh, the, the same acreage and the open space and the same uh, revolutionary history uh, and the, the same intent to do this as a pay on to the the Shah and the monarchy originally, et cetera, but that the building looked like the Sears Tower or something, uh, <laughs> that it wouldn't be the symbol that it is today. You're absolutely right. Yes. Well, you're absolutely yes. right. Is You're agreeing with yourself <laughs> because I'm just clarifying, but I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, it puts quite an onus on architecture for shaping our history then, doesn't it? Yes. And, and one thing that is important is that the education and the institutions that went into making this monument. I mean, Hossein Amanat is a byproduct of the late 60s, early 70s architectural culture in Iran that itself had gone through a number of revolutionary changes. It had gone through changes. When Tehran University was established in 1934, the fine arts faculty, which had both an architectural school and a fine arts school for sculpture and painting and other medias, um, was very important. And uh, the head of it was André Godard, a French architect and the head of the archaeological services. So he created a curriculum that was very French, based on the L'École des Beaux-Arts tradition. But then when others 
other Iranians like Mohsen Furughi or uh, Sehun, they took over, they were adamant about making it an Iranian institution with Iranian priorities and sending students to Yazd and Kerman and other places for students to look at Iran's architectural history, not sort of look at Parisian uh, blueprints. Um, by the time uh, uh, Amanat was designing this building, we already see a local indigenous um, architectural culture and architectural design. And that's, I think, part of its success. Mm. Um, and, and that's also part of why it wasn't destroyed, because it ultimately it's a very Iranian monument regardless of the political spectrum where you stand. A final question to you. Um, for an ancient country like Iran, um, it's a pretty new building. I mean, 1971 ain't that long ago, you know. Uh, if you were to guess, would you say that this building is going to sustain um, for centuries to come? Will it be something that is still the symbol of Tehran or Iran through new regime changes, through new uh, governments, through new uh, societies, uh, peoples, uh, through the years? Um, I, I think every architect builds for prosperity, and especially every good architect builds for prosperity. So the hope is that, yes, it will. Structurally, it has proven itself to be um, enduring. I think if the planet survives. Right, right, right. Uh, if the planet is still here, I should have started with that. Yes. <laughs> Assuming the planet survives. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think so if I had to guess. <laughs> It's been a great pleasure talking to you and, and so informative. And uh, you, I suspected you would be the right person to talk to you about this and to learn from. And, and, and you have been. I thank you so much for the time you've given us today. Thank you, Jian. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Talin Grigor, a professor and chair of the Art History Program in the Department of Art and Art History at the University of California, Davis. We reached Talon in Davis, California today. This is full time for the Rook series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 1. Check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That's our website where you can link to episodes of Rook, funnies, videos, outtakes, gallery, etc. Rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Producer Susan Ponta, the artist. Fabulous Keon, Super Parisa, Sabi Roham, Alay Mertad, Sponsorship Sean, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on any of our platforms if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at uh, Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashin. <laughs> <laughs>